If you have your Bibles with you, how about if you open it up to Acts chapter 4. While you're turning there, let me remind you that uh, coming up in a couple weeks, we have baptism here at New Hope. If you're interested in participating in that, it'll be part of the service. But if you've never been baptized before, really encourage you to take that seriously, that opportunity to follow in what Christ called obedience, to let everybody know in the church that you're a believer in Jesus. That's what baptism's all about. And then, guys, for you, uh, coming up on March 18th is a new men's study starting called the Gospel Revolution. You can see the details on that in your bulletin this morning so that you can learn more about it. Let me pray with you before we step into Acts chapter 4. Would you join me in that? Heavenly Father, having come before you with communion and having come before you with songs and our hearts prepared as much as we can prepare them, we ask that you would take us fully to the place we can't get to by ourselves, and that requires the work of your Holy Spirit, that we would be in a place where you would teach us and that you would lead us and you would guide us, show us things that we can't see on our own. We, we invite it, Father. We invite the activity of your Holy Spirit. We want to know you better. We want to encounter you. Help us to have a fresh understanding of your passion for us and your passion for your glory and your passion for the name of Jesus to be glorified. We would ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Over the last couple of years, we have a phrase that we've used, and you probably haven't seen it in a little while, but I'd like you to see it again this morning because it's going to frame Acts chapter 4 for us, and it goes like this. What you believe about God determines what you do next. Now, if that's catching you cold or perhaps you've never seen it before, you may need to chew on it a little bit, but it is specific, specifically applies to Acts chapter 4 and how these individuals respond to very difficult circumstances. That phrase doesn't have to just be an application to difficult circumstances. It can be in response to things that catch you by surprise that might be very good. How you respond to circumstances that God brings your way really determines what you believe about God. And so what you believe about God determines what you do next is a phrase for that reason. Here's what we know about the early church. The early church specifically, as we've been discovering here, lacked advantages that we have become accustomed to. We have become accustomed to a climate-controlled environment, and we like it. We like our creature comforts. We like our projectors. We like our pianos. We like our parking spots for our donkeys. They had none of that, right? They didn't have the creature comforts that we have they didn't even have pastors with credentials. As a matter of fact, their pastors had jail records, as you learned last week. Peter and John were thrown in jail, arrested, because they were in violation of what the Supreme Court had deemed appropriate behavior. So among a gathering of people who were Christ people, typically when you saw them gathered together, not only would you find pastors with arrest records, you would find farmers and fishermen and prostitutes and tax collectors and wealthy financiers and down-and-out formerly disabled people. You found a, quite a mixed bag of individuals, and it sounds like it would produce absolute chaos that that kind of group getting together couldn't possibly be unified 
But what we find through Scripture is these are a unified individual group of individuals because of one particular bond. Let me remind you of what that is, and it's in John chapter 1. It says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. So a group of individuals who have gathered, we've seen by now that they're in the thousands, who have identified Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're unified by one particular bond. Jesus, they've received him, and as a result, they've been adopted into God's family. So that means they're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's where you and I are at this morning. We've been adopted, been received, we have received Jesus, we've been taken into the kingdom, and so we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And when you become a brother or sister, that means all the barriers fade away. So no longer are they known as prostitutes and tax collectors, farmers and fishermen, but they're known as children, heirs to the kingdom, those who have an eternal destiny together. That makes the church a really, really unique environment because God accepts us no matter what our past is, no matter who we were, it's who we are in Jesus now. That's why what Brian said to me was so significant at the communion table, and he doesn't even know this, but when he said, the blood of Christ and the body of Christ for you, that puts me on an even playing field with you, and that puts you on an even playing field with me, because there's no ladders at the cross, right, church? We're all on even ground. That's what you find coming out here. And that's really significant as we look at the persecution that they're about to go under. The outcome of the persecution is there's this greater cohesion. They're beginning to join together. Persecuted believers are naturally drawn together. Let me use verse 18 before we get to verse 23. Verse 23 is where we left off last week. But I want to remind you of verse 18 because specifically, if you weren't here last week, the little background is they were commanded by the government to never talk about Jesus again. Look with me at verse 18 on the screen or in your Bible if you have it open. And when they had summoned them, meaning this is the Supreme Court, when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, I envision that the moments between when Peter and John were arrested and when Peter and John are released, there was enormous tension. I'm believing that the body of brothers and sisters came together and began praying because they know that Peter and John have been put on trial and they've been arrested by the exact same Supreme Court that condemned Jesus and executed Jesus 50 days earlier. And now they're beginning to see two of their own arrested and put on trial by the exact same court. So this had to be a time of enormous tension. But they emerge without a scratch, according to verse 23. Jump down to there. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So notice what they did first. They go to the church. They go to their own. So first thing that they do, it's probably not the entire group of 5,000 plus people. There was no building big enough to pack in 5,000 plus people at this period of time. But whatever was gathered obviously was a pretty large group. As this story unfolds, you'll see it. I suspect that they gathered together to pray, and when they see Peter and John come bursting through the doors, man, everybody begins cheering. But after the cheering fades down, according to verse 23, we're told that they reported to everybody what the elders and chief priests had just said to them. And it probably sounded something like this. They want us to stop talking about Jesus 
Somebody on the other side of the room would say, yeah, right, like that's going to happen. But Peter and John would have to say, what? no, they told us it's a command, official. The Supreme Court said, you may not speak or teach in the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus has become politically incorrect. I can't imagine what that would be like to live in those circumstances, can you? You can't say speak or teach in the name of Jesus without offending someone. The government, especially in this case, has said it's taboo. Now what you want to notice as this story unfolds is you won't find Peter and John in a place of gloom or fear, but a place of exhilaration. I actually think they're kind of excited here, and I'll show you why in just a moment. For one, they've just spoken to the Supreme Court. They got to tell the highest rulers in the land, the brightest minds in the nation, who Jesus is. And they they did it in no uncertain terms, as you saw last week. But also, they got to suffer for the name of Jesus. And you might be thinking, why is that so you know, praiseworthy. What, why would they be excited about that? Well, let's look, first of all, to see that that is what they actually do. In chapter 5, look with me on the screen, you'll see that they get arrested again. And the second time when they're released, this is what happens, verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Do you know what just happened in that setting? They were arrested the second time, and they were beat, flogged. Skin peeled from their back, yet they go out rejoicing. See, I think there's exhilaration here, not gloom or fear, because they got their attitude right. They counted themselves worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. So I'm not thinking there's any fear in this room. I think there's exhilaration. What we need to ask ourselves at this moment is, how does the fellowship respond? How do the brothers and sisters in Christ who've gathered together and pray, how do they respond in this moment? How do you respond, church, when you hear hard news? How do you respond in a moment like this? Well, I'll lean back into what we started with. What you believe about God determines what you do next. What you believe about God and His control over circumstances Is God in control or not? See, they've got a choice. Their choice is how they're going to respond. They've just been given a command not to talk about Jesus. You've been told by those who are in control, if you continue to talk about Jesus, we will hunt you down. We will destroy you. You will lose your business. You will not only lose your business, you will be an outcast from society. You'll not only be an outcast from society, it may require your entire life. As you'll see Acts 4 unfold into Acts 5, people actually lost their life for proclaiming the name of Jesus in this setting. So they understand the complications of what they're about to face here. What the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, wants them to think is that they're in control. And they believe that they're in control. That they're the absolute power. The greatest source of power. But what you're about to see is the greatest source of power is really in what follows. What I find in Acts chapter 4 is one of the greatest moments required, recorded in the New Testament. Let's look at it. It says this specifically in verse 24, and maybe you can fill in the blank here. And when they had heard this, they ran with fear, screamed, said, no, we can't do that. We're going to never talk about Jesus again. Is that how they responded? 
Verse 24 says something differently. It says, when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. Now, that's natural. You would think Christ's followers are going to begin to pray, but how they pray is very specific. It's a spontaneous outburst. One ancient theologian was looking back at this period of time and said that he believes what's going on here is um, in the Jewish context, when a leader would stand up among the Jewish people, a liturgical action kicked in, in that the leader would recite a phrase and the congregation would say the phrase back to him. And then he would say the next phrase, and they would say it back to him. That may be what's unfolding here, but what catches my attention is the fact that this fellowship responds not with fear, not with anxiety, but with praise. And as you watch this prayer, which is really short, unfold, what you see them doing immediately is begin praising God for who he is, first of all, and then secondly, for accomplishing his purposes. And then they go into request mode. Why is that so significant? Because that's how Jesus taught us to pray. Do you remember when the disciples came to Jesus and said, will you teach us how to pray like you pray? Jesus' response was, okay, well, do it like this. Our Father who's in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, glorify God's name first. Talk about who he is and what he's done And then give us today our daily bread. That's exactly what they do. They praise God for who He is, for accomplishing His purposes, and then they go into request mode. That our prayer would be like that. That Mark Kring's prayer would be like that. I mean, I'm outing myself many times. I go right into request mode. Anybody else do that? Okay, I'm glad I'm among good people. We're just being honest with each other. It's so easy to go right into request mode. But what we see in the model here is they acknowledge who God is first, and that's very significant. In this conversation that they're about to have with God in these couple verses, theology just jumps off the page. It's kind of fun, actually, to watch. So let's watch their response, and it keeps going in verse 24 that way. What you're about to see is them quoting King David from Psalm chapter 2. Watch this. Verse 24, they lift their voices and said, O Lord... It is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? Now this phrase, O Lord, is actually in your notes this morning, and I want you to see the word on the screen. I only gave you two Greek words, but this first one is despotes, and and this is significant because they're not just using a generic term for God. It's not... God in heaven, will will you hear me? It's, O Lord, despotes. Despotes is an absolute ruler, one who's an absolute master. We use it in the English language as despot, one who might be associated with being an evil ruler with absolute power or could be associated with being a good ruler with absolute power. But in the Greek world, it just meant someone who is an absolute ruler, So they acknowledge he's the master of everything, and what they do next is they approach him as creator. Now, if your daddy is Lord, absolute ruler over heaven and earth, sky and sea, what do you have to fear? That's why they start out this way. They're reminding them of who he is because they're faced with opposition, and the opposition is intense. So they're taking comfort in God's control over everything, that God rules. That's why verse 25 says, through the mouth of our father David, they're leaning back into an ancient quote, 
Psalms 2 unfolding. Let's see how it unfolds. Verse 26. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city, this is still prayer mode, verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And if you've never seen a theological mouthful in a Bible verse before, you're looking at it. Verse 28 is a theological mouthful. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Here's what they're doing. They're reaching back into the ancient past. King David had lived 1,000 years before them. They lived 2,000 years before us. So David's 3,000 years back in time. And 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years before these people, David wrote something in Psalm 2, something he didn't fully understand, but yet he was writing about circumstances the Spirit of God caused him to write about. Look at his actual quote. You'll see this on the screen, Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth have taken their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Verse 4 is kind of fun. And he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. I'll come back to that in just a moment. David is writing prophetically. 1,000 years before Jesus lived, looking forward in time about this raging that would take place. So as you see this list behind me on screen of the names that David has quoted here, associate them this way. The kings of the earth, that's King Herod. The rulers, that's the Roman Empire. The nation of Rome that has come against them, Pontius Pilate specifically. The nations, that's the Gentile authorities. Always in the Bible when it refers to the nations, it's the Gentiles. The people, That's the people of Israel. These are the same enemies that ganged up against Jesus. David's writing about it a thousand years earlier. Why are the people devising a vain thing? These people are living through this period of time when they see this opposition. Here's what it means, bigger picture. It means God knew. God knew in advance. Why? That's why they could use the word predestined in that last verse. They're just doing whatever your hand had purposed. Whatever you had predestined, here's what this should tell you, church. Even with all the scheming, even with all the plotting among evil people who are raging against the king, it all means nothing because God has completely planned it all out. They're watching the stages unfold. They're just seeing what God had already predestined. It's all part of his plan. So there's no need to fear new hope. When you see things feeling like they're crumbling, God's got it all in control. That's why Psalm 2, 4 says, God, he laughs at these things. He who sits in heaven scoffs at them as though they could unseat the king of kings, even though they rage against him. So these individuals are praying God's own word right back to him. Here's what this reminds me of. Our God, he wrote history before it was history. Our God knows it all. All the plans are in place. He knows how things are unfolding, even when it doesn't feel like it. So despite all the raging of humanity, your God's purposes always prevail. 
As you come into this next verse, what you should notice is they do not permit their confidence in God's sovereignty, his ability to rule, to remove the human responsibility in this. Move forward with me into the next verse, verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is really weighty because what I'm noticing here is they're not praying for relief from harassment. And I know I'm so tempted to do that. I know that you are. When things don't go the way we want them to go, our first temptation is to say, God, would you remove me from this or or take this thing away from me? But they're not praying for relief from harassment. They're not even praying for judgment on those enemies. They're saying this, put yourself on display, God. It's all about you. I'll remove myself from this. This is your purposes. I am so impressed with these individuals. They're asking God to make the best of their circumstances rather than change their circumstances. God, will you accomplish through these circumstances what you've intended? And I want you to notice this is not passivity, church. This is not them backing away saying, okay, we'll we'll just check out. This is not passivity whatsoever. You're looking at raw faith, faith in the God of history, that he's got a perfect plan. So when they say in verse 29, take note of their threats against us, they're not reminding God as though he's unaware and not paying attention to what's going on. They're just saying, we're turning it over to you for your purposes. Here's what really catches me about their very short prayer. It's what's omitted. It's what is not expressed here. What I see very specifically is I expect them to ask for God's deliverance. They do not do that. They're not asking for God to change the circumstances. So here's why this is important. They're not asking for fire to come down from heaven to destroy their enemies. They're asking for power to come down from heaven to allow them to speak boldly. Here's why this catches my attention. If you're familiar with the New Testament at all, you know the story of Luke chapter 9, where Jesus is traveling around the Samaritan area called the area of Samaria. And these are people who were not necessarily thinking like the Jewish people were. And Jewish boys and girls didn't tend to go hang out with the Samaritans. They just didn't go into that territory. So Jesus takes his disciples, Jewish by birth, into this region of Samaria, and he decides he wants to go spend some time in a village talking to some Samaritans. But when he arrives at the village, the Samaritans don't really receive him very well. Now, James and John are walking with Jesus, and they have a reaction, a visceral reaction to these people in Samaria not wanting Jesus to come into their village. They actually ask Jesus if he would destroy the village. Look with me up on the screen at Luke 9, 54. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? See, put that under the category of things you wish you'd never said. Someday you can go into eternity and see James and John and remind them of this, and I'm thinking they're going to want to back away from it. But realizing that that was a time when they didn't really understand. Jesus, do you want to bring down a nuclear bomb on these people? We'll unleash it on them. They didn't understand. So Jesus responded in the next verse by saying this, verse 54, 
But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Here's what's remarkable. These same individuals are now in this room. One of them, John, has just stood before the Supreme Court telling people they don't want us to talk about Jesus anymore. What is their great desire now? Boldness to see their enemies saved. Who can change a heart like that? Only God. Only God can change a heart like that. James, John, Peter, Bartholomew, Philip, Andrew, they're all now praying that God would release his power. I love this church because the emphasis is on the hand of God working through the people in the church. And how do they believe that's going to happen? They believe that it's going to happen through prayer. That's why they're praying. They believe through prayer, God's going to release his power. And they want even more courage to be even more bold. Do you think that they clearly understood that there was going to be more persecution if they kept talking about the name of Jesus? I do. I think they clearly understood. They know the Supreme Court's still in power. They know the Sanhedrin still sits in the hall of hewn stone. They know that that same court killed Jesus. So I think they fully understand they're inviting persecution. But their ultimate concern is not the persecution. It's that God's word would go forward, that Jesus would be glorified. So what they're doing is they're leaving the details to God. This quote humbles me from Dr. Brooks, but I need to share it because it probably will have the same impact on you, but it's significant. He was looking at this passage and he said, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for task equal to your powers. Pray for power equal to your task. Love that. How far are these first century disciples removed from intimidation? Completely. They're they're not walking in intimidation. They're walking in power. They're asking God to release His power. Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. See, surrendered prayer really gets God's attention, doesn't it? They're completely surrendered. So this building, if you're wondering, is physically shaken. It's talking about a megas seismos, a shaking violently of this building. And when you see things in the Bible that are physically shaken, that's God showing up saying, I'm here. I am present. I want you to know I'm among you. In this way, they experience boldness like they've never experienced before. Let me show you from Exodus 19 how God shows up and shakes things. It says this in verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. They're experiencing the same thing, the shaking of the building, and as a result, God then gives them a fresh new filling of the Holy Spirit. They're aware of the presence of God and that the power is being released in them. And that translates into boldness. I'm not reading this as a second Pentecost. I don't think you should either. The Spirit has already arrived. They already have the Holy Spirit within them. What you're looking at is a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. And leaning back into my illustration from last week, I would say specifically this is like what I talked about with the the dim light bulb and the bright light bulb. 
If the dimmer switch is on low, the power is still there. But when the switch goes up to full power, the room lights up. The Holy Spirit in this setting is going full power with them. How does that translate to us today, 2015? How do we seek the power of the Holy Spirit? The Spirit's already within us if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. God says the Spirit's in you and you're sealed for eternity. Here's what I see them doing. They're not only praying for boldness, they're praying specifically in ways that many people don't pray today. When you look at this, you have to recognize we pray in specifics because God answers in specifics. So what are they praying for? They're saying, God, will you come upon us in power, and when you do, make us bold to speak, heal people in your name, magnify the name of Jesus. Those are very specific prayers. So if we pray specifically, God answers specifically. And Jesus actually told them, keep praying, keep knocking, keep asking, keep seeking, meaning you've got to stay at it. You want to experience the power, you've got to ask for it. This is the third time the Holy Spirit has shown up in power in the book of Acts. This is very, very relevant for us, church. If this is what we want, this is the way we pray. I'm going to ask a request of you. We're, we're coming into Easter, three weeks away. I'm just going to ask before you come into the services each week, perhaps throughout the week as you remember it, that you would be praying for the release of God's power in this place, that we would experience the Holy Spirit filling us to the point where God is boldly proclaimed. And if you think he's being boldly proclaimed, that's great, but there's room for more, right? We can always do more. Even good churches need to experience more of God. We never get to the place where we arrive So we see these individuals who have just walked with Jesus, who have seen a lame man healed. They still are asking for the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is what's cool to me. Outside, the enemy is still raging. The kings of the earth are devising their plans. But inside, the Spirit of God has come in power, and it prevails upon them and settles in such a way they start loving on each other. Look at this with me in verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. One heart, one soul. Sounds pretty amazing, right? Have you ever seen anything like that? You're not going to see it in government. You're not going to see it in business. I mean, people are not made up that way, but you're supposed to see it in church, Meaning when God's people do life the way that he intends, you're looking at the byproduct. Uh, Not self-promoting here, but I think New Hope has the elements of this. There is a lack of discord here. Meaning we figured out how to get rid of the red tape. How to release people to serve. How to do life together. How to love on each other. And if you're visiting here, you might be wondering, how is this possible? Well, we recognize here at New Hope that our unity is really based on the fact that we've got some components that stem right out of Jesus. First one comes right from Philippians 2.3. It says this, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Wow, that is so hard to do, isn't it? I mean, if we're just being honest with each other, because I really like myself, and I'm guessing you really like yourself. And so if we really, really like ourselves... 
It's hard to put somebody else before us, isn't it? Is that just me? I think you understand what I'm talking about here. So where does this come from? Well, I see it specifically, and you won't find it in your notes. There's three things here. These individuals are completely surrendered to God, meaning they got their priorities in place. His purposes are their purposes. They're focused beyond themselves, meaning they're aware that there's a lot of lost people out there. And so they're constantly focused on how do we get the name of Jesus out there? And as a result, that leads to number three, they become occupied with serving each other so that the world can see this is what life is supposed to look like. When you have those three things in place, you're dedicating all your energy to those and you don't have time to dedicate energy to the trivial things that don't matter. You're dedicated to kingdom things. Now, if you want to take it to a deeper level, this first century church is so intent on meeting each other's needs, they actually arrive at the place where they have no desire for an accumulation of personal gain. There's a sense of oneness that's so strong here that they're starting to live life without having to claim their personal possessions. And I want to be really clear. This is not communism. No one's being forced to do what you see here. This is communism in which there's a genuine sharing going on. Matter of fact, when you look at Acts 12, you'll see that they still own their own homes. They still have their own possessions. But they've arrived at a place where they recognize, hey, you need a can of peaches? I I happen to have peaches in my pantry. You need a ride to work? I've got a car. I can give you a ride. You need to have some tools to fix your car? I'd be happy to share with you. That's what's going on here. They're arriving at a place where they're doing life together. What is that a reflection of, church? It's a reflection of God's heart. The one who shed his blood and gave his body on the cross, who held nothing back from us, Why would we hold back from our brothers and sisters if there's a real, genuine need going on? That's what you see unfolding here. I want to never lose sight of the primary goal. The primary goal is stated in verse 33. The, The primary goal is to make Jesus known, but watch this unfold as the two work together. Verse 33, it says, And with great power, meaning megas dunamis, real power, With Megas Dunamis, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. His power is primary, the the Megas power, to give resurrection witness, that's what they're focused on, the very thing the Supreme Court has told them not to do. The Sanhedrin said, don't speak about Jesus. They've prayed to have the ability to speak about Jesus, the confidence to do it. Even though they know the name of Jesus greatly offends the society that they're living in, they're willing to say, at all cost, we're going to make this first which should tell us that the followers of Jesus never suppress the truth, even when it costs something, to the point where it actually becomes uncomfortable. And that's what you see going on here. So I see them teaching the Word of God and taking care of each other's needs, and as a result, according to verse 33, abundant grace is upon them, meaning they've got God's favor. 
God is really pleased with what they're doing. He's pleased with their focus. And so the result in all of Jerusalem, it says there's not a needy person among them, meaning among the brothers and sisters in Jesus. There's still needy people outside the walls. There's still needy people living in Jerusalem at this period of time. But among the fellowship, among the brothers and sisters in Christ, this is a great principle for us. They've recognized that everything that we have belongs to God. We're just stewards, right, church? We are. We're stewards. Some have been gifted with the ability to be steward of more. Some have been gifted with the ability to be stewards of less. But we're all stewards. We all have responsibility. So if we steward this because it all belongs to God, when there's a need, why would we hold back from one of God's children? There's a really practical test of where we're at on this from a writer who gets really bold on this issue. His name is James, and he's the brother of Jesus, and he wrote about it this way. He said in James 2.15, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Now, John is even more blunt than James. He said it this way, 1 John 3, But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother, meaning a brother or sister in Christ, in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now what's really clear as you look at this story is these guys are not pooling their possessions. Like I said, it's not communism. I don't want to diminish in any way what's going on here, but here's what's really clear. In the Greek language, it's written in the imperfect text meaning it's going on year after year after year after year. They're not emptying themselves of all their resources and putting it in a community pool. Rather, what they're doing is as they recognize a need, they're stepping up and meeting the need. This is a continuous way of life. If 5,000 people who belong to the church in Jerusalem all of a sudden decided to put their real estate on the market and all got Remax signs in one day and put it in the front yard, what would that do to the economy of Jerusalem? It would destroy it. They're not out for destroying the economy. So as there's needs, those who own investment property are selling properties periodically as there's real genuine need because our God is a God of order according to his word and that's how they're responding. Now to close this out, here's what happens. I'm not gonna get into it today, but he gives an example of one individual who did that very thing. His name is Barnabas. And then he gives a counter example by showing Ananias and Sapphira. But I just want to read it, but we're not going to get into it. We'll, we'll touch on it next time. It says this in verse 36, just to end chapter 4. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So what Dr. Luke has done here is he's taken a sample person, and he says, here, here's what it looks like when people share And then he uses Ananias and Sapphira to show what it looks like when people don't share, when they're not generous. Here's what I'm learning from these ancient Jesus people. I'm up to chapter 4 now with you. We've worked all the way through four chapters. I'm seeing specifically they see the hand of God in their struggle. And so they recognize it's not out of God's control. This is predestined. I'm going to give you four words. I didn't intend to, but just kind of came out that way. So specifically, they see God in their struggle, meaning God's in control. They, they recognize the predestination. Here's the second one. They desire that God be glorified. That means they've got their priorities in place. That's their primary goal, that God would be glorified. So their priorities are in place. So as a result, 
they pray. They pray that the name of Jesus would go forward boldly and that God would answer their prayer. And here's the fourth one. They are bold as a result to proclaim. So predestined, priorities, prayer, and proclaim. In this particular case, and here's what I think the prayer looks like. The the prayer specifically is that they can rise above the circumstances that they find themselves in. Have you ever prayed that way? Have you ever prayed that in the midst of really, really hard times that you can rise above it and see what God is doing in the midst of it and ask God to use you in the circumstances rather than removing you from them? That's what you see them doing here. They're rising to the opportunity that God has given them. So I want to close with one more quote, if you can endure it. And it comes from another old dead theologian. And he's looking at this process and he said this, pray for great things. Expect great things. Work for great things. But above all, pray. This passage is really relevant to us, church. It's very relevant in 2015. It's relevant because of the answer. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit is exactly what is needed in the United States of America in 2015. If we want to see our nation recognize God as Lord and Jesus as King, we have to recognize it only comes through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that brings that about. Regardless of the challenges that are facing us, it's God who will do that. That is true even of the best of churches that God would pour out his spirit upon new hope would be reflective of what you see happening in the first century. Here's the second one. It's really relevant because of who's praying. It's not just some special people. It's not just the apostles. They came to their own, and the entire body joined in prayer before the Father. Fishermen, farmers, harlots, tax collectors whom God is responding to. And they're speaking the word of God boldly. And here's the third thing. It's really relevant because of when it was prayed. Immediately following the threats. And here's why this is so significant to me. Perhaps the most significant. They have just come through Pentecost. They have seen speaking in tongues. They have seen people who were born disabled get up and walk. They've seen the Supreme Court release Peter and John. The temptation in human nature is to think, we got this. I mean, God's got our back. Look at this. In that moment is when they recognize we need even more. We need more power because they recognize fear could absolutely paralyze them because their government has just come against them and said, you will not talk about the name of Jesus or you will suffer for it. See, if, if these early Christians with firsthand experience of Jesus, if they need to seek an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, how much more do we, church? So I'll lean back into where we started. What you believe about God determines what you do next. How you respond to circumstances really reflects what you believe about God personally. March 25th, here in this auditorium, the church is gathering together for a time of praise and worship, prayer time. Michael's putting together a great night of music and a chance for the entire New Hope body to come together. Why? Because that's just a week before Easter. And we all know what happens around here at Easter time, don't we? 
You can't find a seat in the place because all three services fill up, because people are looking for an encounter with God. Do we need the Holy Spirit to go before us in that time? So we gather together on March 25th for that purpose. I'm encouraging you to be part of that. Here's the second way you can be part of it. We've got a prayer team here at New Hope. And if you'd like to be part of the prayer team, you're welcome to. We would be thrilled to put you on the prayer team. Here's the third way. If you need to be prayed for, there's prayer cards. Don't ever forget that. They're in the racks in front of you. On the back side of the welcome card, it says note to the pastor. Just write your prayer request on there, and that prayer team would love to pray for you about the issues that are going on in your life. Take that card and just slide it in one of the offering boxes, and we'll make sure that gets on the prayer list. Can I pray for us about all of that as we close? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the beginning of the service asking for your presence, and I believe that you've responded and you've answered. I feel your presence here. I sense it among your people and the learning that's taken place in the way that your Holy Spirit has moved in our lives. So God, I ask that you would translate what we have just experienced to what we have just encountered and transition us, Father, from this place of safety into this world where there's antagonism against Jesus and use us. I pray this on behalf of the hearts that are here, that we would be bolder for the name of our King that we would speak with a greater degree of confidence regardless of the cost. And in that way, the kingdom is advanced. But Father, don't let us do it absent of the Holy Spirit, that we would not try and do it on our own, but rather that your Holy Spirit would come in great power, that you would reign in majesty, and that all people would know that Jesus is Lord. It's in his name that we pray, and all God's people say, Amen.